0: Welcome to Zero Knowledge, a podcast where we explore
1: the latest in blockchain technology and the decentralized web. The show is hosted by me, Anna,
2: and me, Frederick. Today, I talked to Cara Floss and Phil Dian about plasma and storage rents. Floss every day, kids. Welcome, guys. Today we have uh, Carl and Phil with us, and uh, maybe you guys can just give a little bit of intro about yourselves uh, for those not in the know. Carl, who are you? What do you do? Hello, hello. I am Carl.Tech, a.k.a. Carlos,
0: a.k.a. Carl Floss, um, and I am an Ethereum researcher and working on Casper, Sharding, and Plasma.
1: And uh, I'm Phil Diane, and I am a researcher and PhD student at Cornell Tech, working on smart contract security, uh, crypto economics, and a variety of other blockchain-related problems.
2: Is that your, like, is the PhD in those topics? Yeah, yeah. That's interesting that you can do a PhD on that. So it's, it's computer science, I suppose. Yeah.
1: Um, you can do a PhD in pretty much whatever you want, as long as you can convince someone like, around you that
0: it's worthwhile, so... What Phil does is worthwhile. To some people.
2: To some people. So let's let's kick it off with talking about Plasma. That's something that you're working on, Carl. Can you give us the, the elevator pitch for Plasma?
0: Sure. So Plasma is a scaling solution for Ethereum that allows you to create a smart contract, blockchain application, decentralized application, which does not actually put a huge number of state transitions on the Ethereum chain. Okay, so what does that actually mean in some ways? Well, it allows you to send some Ether to a smart contract or any token to a smart contract or technically any state. And then once it's on that smart contract, it is able to be transferred off-chain, similar to kind of a state channel, it's you know one of these scaling solutions. And while it's transferred off-chain, you can have massive transaction throughput. And then once you want to reclaim your transactions, reclaim your tokens on-chain, you send another transaction proving that the state transitions are what you say they are, and you get your tokens back. Um, on a high level, it's a little bit complicated. <laughs> I wish I had diagrams. <laughs>
2: Yeah, it's always the the downfall of the podcast is you can't actually illustrate anything, so you just kind of have to talk stuff through. But uh, so with Plasma, is it a full contract on off-chain or is it just like a UTXO model or like is it just tokens or is it everything?
0: Great question. So the cool thing about Plasma is it's not a particular design. It is instead a family of designs. And so there are... Blockchain uh, decentralized application designs, which are just UTXO model, and that's like the the Plasma MVP uses UTXOs. There's also uh, research being done in general state transition, So essentially, taking a full EVM and putting that off chain, and you know, transacting off chain with that. Um, there's also uh, recently Plasma Cash, which is kind of just a, a list of transactions based on. Uh, uh, non-fungible assets but man it's hard to get into the details but basically the idea is it's all open all the possibilities and and there's uh, a, a lot of opportunities to contribute to this research and you can follow on youtube at a uh, uh, if you youtube plasma call it's exciting stuff phil doesn't think that plasma is perfect I mean, plasma is
1: not perfect. That's correct. So, like, one problem with it is that who's really securing this off-chain thing is it's centralized, isn't it?
0: Mm, good. So, there is a central uh, operator, oftentimes, with these plasma chains. And this central operator... Is not unconstrained, so you can actually think there's there's this distinction between you know uh, uh, maybe an exchange, for instance, you could send your your ETH or your tokens to a smart contract, and that smart contract is just owned by an exchange, and that exchange like will transact for you really rapidly, and then uh, you can like try to withdraw from the exchange, but. You now have to trust the exchange to not lose your money. To, you know, there, there are a million different issues with this. But with something like Plasma, you actually have economic rules which say, okay, you can send money to this smart contract. Some central operator can kind of transact on your behalf. However, you are always able to withdraw your tokens, and there's no way for that operator to kind of either steal your money or, or mess with your balance. So it's this kind of interesting middle ground.
1: Sure. So, uh, how do you handle data availability in this model?
0: Great question. So one issue is if the central operator were to kind of go, so I'll talk about plasma cash in particular, plasma cash has really nice benefits when you're, when you, uh, uh, regarding your tokens, as in they are always safe. As long as you're watching the main chain to make sure that no one, or someone is watching the main chain to make sure that no one steals your particular tokens or tries to steal your tokens. Um, but if the central operator publishes a Merkle route, which is uh, uh, of a block that is withheld, then you don't know what the actual you know, state transitions are, and you have to for for the for the like plasma chain to continue in its current simple spec you would have to send a transaction back onto the main chain to either you know reclaim your tokens or kind of like do some kind of redeem or or fork switching process so this is like not a really optimal solution because that means that imagine if the central operator were to publish some unavailable block everyone's going to have to send transactions to the main chain. Now, thankfully, this is not as bad as the kind of original mass exit vulnerability. In other words, there is no kind of time limit on when you need to send your transactions onto the main chain. So you can kind of just watch the main chain and make sure that nothing's going on. However, to start transacting again, you would have to send on the main chain. Scary.
1: So it seems like the bar for an attacker who, like, let's say, controls the network is pretty low because they can also censor you. It doesn't have to actually be the operator of the centralized chain, right?
0: Well, hmm. I would... S- mm, you are, so are you thinking that they're, they're censoring you as in they're censoring your transactions? Or? No, as
1: in they're withholding blocks from you. So like, let's say your ISP.
0: Okay. Um, if your ISP is withholding blocks from you... Uh, are they withholding blocks on the Ethereum chain or the Plasma no, chain? No, 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 the Plasma chain only. Okay. So if they're withholding blocks from you on the Plasma chain, then there wouldn't be much of a way to transact anyway, because you wouldn't know what anyone's balances are? And
1: I mean, not not blocks in general, just a block.
0: A particular block? Yeah. Hmm.
1: So, so I, I don't like the fact that you're trading on the exchange right now, Carl, so... Uh, I, I sort of insert myself into the route between the centralized exchange operator and you and just, mm. like, censor this one particular block or censor you for, like, some time period such that, on average, I'll get, like, one or two blocks uh, censored.
0: So there may be ways to kind of make assumptions about what's in that block for your particular transaction. So there, if there was a transaction in flight that you've signed, then there's a possibility that that um, transaction was included in the block that they are withholding from you. However, if the person who you're sending money to accepts the transaction and you see that that transaction was included in the main chain, you can't. Okay, so you can't actually with with you can't receive <laughs> coins, but you can like send them kind of. Um, so you're right. This is this is an issue.
2: Let's uh, let's take a step back um, because. It's not super clear to me what the role of the operator really is. So in in sort of like a Raiden or Lightning network, um, you don't necessarily have a central operator that does anything. But because routing is a hard problem, it's actually really difficult to find the person in the network that you're trying to send money to. And so what ends up happening is you have kind of this hub and spoke model where there's a hub that everyone is connected to. And then so it kind of shortcuts the routing problem and, and fixes that. Is it a similar role to that or is it something different entirely? It is a little bit different in that the
0: central operator is basically responsible for publishing an accumulator. This is a fancy word for something like a Merkle tree or something that uh, it's a a concise piece of data, which you can then check membership and non-membership of. Oh, I wish I had more time to explain this. But... um, that central op- operator is responsible for for essentially it's like computing state transitions and publishing an accumulator which contains those state transitions and so you bundle those up and
2: you um, and you need that operator because no individual in this network necessarily sees all the like there needs to be someone that publishes there, this there's thing.
1: not really a network right this is just like you want to move like a coin off chain and then transact really quickly in some centralized realm and move it on the chain you at least in its current form, from what I'm aware, it's you can't send, like, Plasma Channel to Plasma Channel. Yes,
0: yeah, um, so you cannot. There should, there will be research. This is kind of a design space of uh, taking your, like, bun- like, accumulating state transitions off-chain and then publishing them back on-chain, where data availability is not um, uh, guaranteed on-chain. Uh, and so that's kind of, like, in some ways what plasma is and so there should there may be ways to to kind of transact plasma chain to plasma chain and that's an active area of research but definitely in its current spec for like simple plasma cache or you know simple uh, uh, plasma MVP uh, there is n- there hasn't been research in that area
2: but it's called plasma chain because the central operator exists publishes this accumulator that is essentially like a block yeah kind of in, in a mental model and then that block gets committed to, or the header of that block, should we say, gets committed to the main chain. Yeah. So
1: so one more question I have about uh, sort of the Plasma cache instantiation of Plasma, which is that in something like the Lightning Network, um, if you try to cheat somebody by, let's say, publishing an old state, you get uh, heavily penalized for this. Is there an analog to that in Plasma
0: cache? Ah, so there is... Depends on your plasma cash... Uh, instantiation in terms of like how you constrain the operator there there are ways so the question here is like okay how do we detect that the operator did something bad right so the operator can clearly like publish an invalid state transition and if you prove that the operator published an invalid state transition then you could have the operator lose a massive deposit for instance well Um, i'm not
1: even talking about the operator like an individual user can say like here's my utxo i want to redeem it it was uh, last used 10 blocks ago, and really that UTXO has been like repeatedly spent mm. afterwards.
0: Yes, exactly. So when you do send a exit... Then what you're doing is you're also including a bond which pays not only for the gas of a challenge to that exit, but also for that exits, you know, a, a bounty for that uh, for proving that exits invalidity. So you absolutely can like that. That's why you can like in, there is this built-in incentive for you know just bounty hunters to watch the chain to say oh you're inv- exiting inv- is invalid and let me just take your bounty. Um, and the the higher there is a trade-off there, like the higher you make. Make that bond and the make that bounty the harder it is in some ways to exit um, but there are, you know there are ways you could potentially like pool a bunch of exits together and then you have just uh, each person in the pool checks the validity of each exit and now they have a pretty high certainty so they can all put up a like a huge bounty um, so there, there are ways to get you know tune this parameter
2: what's the current state of development of this and and what what does building this thing actually look like
0: Yeah, so the cool thing about Plasma is that it's something that is pretty implementable pretty quickly um, because it is uh, in its at least early forms kind of uh, you have these central actors. You can just like create a REST API or you use the kind of normal quote-unquote web 2.0 stack. It's kind of you can like overlay the the incentives on top of like a web 2.0 stack. Um, And it's also able to be implemented right now in Ethereum in its current state. Um, you don 't need you know plasma you don 't need a uh, sharding or or casper um, to to get this running and so there are already a number of teams that are implementing some forms of both plasma MVP and plasma cache um, that uh, we and that meet once a week or, or actually sorry once every two weeks uh, during the plasma implementer 's call and so we all discuss and so you can actually look online there 's a bunch of github repos there 's a bunch of projects there 's also just people researching um, it 's a kind of big design space which is wide open and and ready to be to be uh explored.
2: So it all of these things I assume are like open source and, and people can jump like if you watch the calls and feel like you want to contribute, you can jump in somewhere.
0: If your plasma implementation is not open source, you're not welcome here. Okay. It's not yeah, I'm gonna say it. You're not welcome here. Yeah.
2: <laughs> <laughs> so uh plasma to me sounds like a type of sharding and we're we're here at a sharding workshop but what what is really the difference would you say between plasma and and a general like sharding solution
0: yeah so sharding is a kind of layer one core fundamental upgrade to ethereum the ethereum protocol and plasma is a architecture which you can use to build a scalable decentralized application on top of ethereum or you know a smart contract blockchain Um, and there's multiple design patterns that you can use to build scalable decentralized applications and in fact that is probably one of the most important areas of research is just exploring what those you know what those design patterns are and then explicitly defining them and then developers who see that definition and see the kind of vision of how you can build these applications can then start building tools around making those you know design patterns easier
1: so does uh, sharding actually have to be
0: layer one consensus change
1: or couldn't you just do it on ethereum today if you if you really wanted to
0: it, yes, so you can do it on Ethereum today without a hard fork, and that's kind of what we're doing for the phase one. Yeah. However, uh, to add in like protocol incentives where you can like mint money, then you do need to you know upgrade and hard fork.
1: Well, you could you could do it with a token, right?
0: Yes. Okay. To up to
2: to mint ETH in particular. Yeah. Right. So I mean, to me, it, it makes sense what you're saying. Like, if you have a plasma chain. Um, that has some sort of state machine that you can write smart contracts on. That you can write write applications on. Uh, then essentially you're creating a shard, but the shard can only operate and be incentivized by, you know, people putting in their own money to do things on this network. Um, and and uh, what you're saying is like a proper sharding solution. You can actually incentivize the players in this game by, you know, mining rewards or whatever like minting actually new tokens
0: yeah there's like a whole uh kind of just the incentives are different the the way that you're arranging actors are different everything if you look at it and you start squinting your eyes looks kind of similar um but the general in general kind of yeah
1: yeah i would say sharding is like almost like having multiple plasma chains where the entities responsible for securing the chain are much more flexible and can sort of be rotated around the various subchains rather than having like a single central authority who's responsible for it.
2: Right. So in plasma, even if you had multiple plasma chains and and somehow invented a way to communicate between them, you'd the security model is very different because you have in each plasma chain the central operator and they're not like it's a very different thing than having like a hundred collators per shard that keep moving around and like you have some sort of like statistical security in that model
1: yeah i mean i mean to make uh, sharding decentralized you do need to use incentives and uh, plasma does not have those incentives at least not in its current form i mean uh, one of the problems i have with plasma is that the paper is very vague and like the design is very vague so like really anything can be plasma right like uh, Jorge Stolfi, one of the, the butt coiners, wrote a great paper a few years ago um, after Blockstream released their sidechains paper called uh, "My Sofa is a Sidechain." I recommend yes. googling it. So he essentially argues that like you guys have made this definition so vague and so all encompassing um, that like my sofa can be rigorously proved to be a sidechain. And I think you know maybe the same thing might apply to plasma because essentially all plasma enforces is like some form of of state channel and like exit procedure.
0: I believe that my sofa is not a plasma chain, <laughs> and I will tell you why. Um, so the way that I'm currently thinking about a plasma chain is that it's it, it is an accumulator, which or a, a, it is a um, like a mechanism to provide. Uh, to accumulate a bunch of state transitions, which eventually can be played on the main chain, like on, on whatever the root chain is, right? So it's essentially in sharding, you're securing a bunch of different chains and you say, okay, each one of these chains has this security property and the history won't revert because of this rationale, that rationale, and the third rationale, But the fundamental difference in a plasma chain is you're not actually saying that the plasma chain will live forever. What you're saying is that the plasma chain might not live forever but you are always able to kind of bundle up those state transitions, which you executed on the plasma chain and bring them back and affect the kind of root chain and and play them onto the root chain. So if I, you know, go send an ETH onto the plasma chain, then I transact and trade and trade and trade and make 10 ETH. Now I have my 10 ETH on the plasma chain. The plasma chain breaks down. I can go back onto the main chain and I accumulate, you know, I am able to withdraw those 10 ETH.
1: Sure. I mean... uh... I don't think this is going to be a super productive line of conversation, but to play devil's advocate here, if you assume that my pocket is a root chain and all of the coins in it are, like, my tokens, then uh, I can deposit those tokens sort of into my sofa. Um, And then the sofa may not exist forever, right? Like, it may at some point be trashed, but at least I have the guarantee that if it gets trashed since it's in my house, I'll be able to sort of notice this. And, like, as long as I'm available, I can sort of withdraw my coins back into the main chain, a.k.a. my pocket, so, you know, I, I still think this is like really an overly vague specification. And uh, maybe this is like my academic preference for, for clarity speaking here. But uh, I think until the systems get built, we like won't even really know uh, what they are. Um, and, you know, th- we're further along in this than when the paper first came out. So these, these criticisms apply less and less. But
0: <laughs> that was amazing. <laughs> I don't know. What to say. I'm, I'm glad you enjoyed it. <laughs>
1: Uh, you can come on my plasma chain anytime.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. I feel so welcome.
2: Would you say that plasma chains is a kind of fancier, more generalized version of state channels?
0: Um, no, I would say that state channels are different. They provide you, um, counterfactual finality, um, which plasma chains don't really get you in the same way. Um, they're they're a little bit different. They they work different. I
1: mean, at least generally, the way people have been doing state chains, it's uh, uh, state channels. It's uh, between two users, whereas Plasma, you have like a bunch of people secured by this like external operator. But again, the word "state channel" is so vague that, like, plasma is a type of state channel, technically, and uh, well, any state channel can be expressed in plasma, as far as I can tell. Here's so.
0: Vitalik's, here, Vitalik's definition of a state channel that I remember. So you know, um, is uh, that every participant in a state channel signs off on every state transition. Um, and that's where you get this kind of finality cuz you get a sign- you get you get guarantees that everyone signed off on it and everyone's okay with moving forward in a plasma chain not everyone is signing off on every state transition you just have like a plasma operator accumulates a bunch of state transitions and then publishes it to the root chain right
2: yeah that makes that makes sense that's a good, uh, i think a good definition of the dif- the difference there yeah
1: yeah I, I don't fully buy it but uh <laughs> sure
0: is my sofa a state channel
1: yeah probably <laughs> I mean does your does your sofa provide counterfactual finality
0: um, <laughs> no. counterfactual yes. it depends on what what properties you care about I think but but it might it very well might
2: no, but I think uh, that that agrees with my my intuition of state channels is like you're saying it's essentially between two two operators, but you could send like if I want to send something to Alice, I could send it through Bob, but then both. Like me, Bob and Alice have to sign whatever whatever goes through whatever nodes I need to go through to reach my target destination. But in plasma, I don't I, I just sign my own thing, send it to the network at, at large, and then eventually the central operator kind of puts it into the accumulator and publishes that yeah so i would argue that if you have a bunch of users
1: and someone they're sort of willing to trust at least somewhat maybe not for integrity but for availability um then you can have like a multi-user state channel where one person just sort of signs off on all of the transitions and each user has the ability to withdraw at any time and then you essentially have plasma but uh I don't know. This this is kind of a pedantic discussion. Um, I think, practically speaking, you're right. The difference is that the state channel is between like a few people, and plasma is sort of secured by someone who maybe is not the participants and is between like many people.
2: It's hard. <laughs> So what's the, what's uh, the time estimate? When do we see the first live implementation?
0: What's the what's the, what's the time estimate? It is <laughs> um you know, if you can code it up, if I spent day and night for the next month, I bet I could code up a plasma chain. Yeah, uh-huh. I mean again,
1: like plasma chain is so vague. I've seen ones that are already done, but like they're not terribly interesting or useful. So right. I think the better question is like when will this technology actually bring value to the user? Yeah. Um and Maybe Carl has
0: a better idea of that. I think we can get something really useful in a few months, my hope. And that's really up to y'all implementers and us spec- specifier, and, and us researchers and you implementer slash researcher. Um, I don't know. I think Plasma Cash will be super, super useful. Um, and I also think Plasma MVP would be useful. Oh, but then it's marketing. Oh, but then it's all <laughs> these other things. You got to get everyone on the Plasma chain. Oh.
2: But um do you envision a plasma that has smart contracts and like you actually write dapps on and and everything?
0: Yeah, I mean you can definitely do that theoretically. I haven't specified... like thought about the specification that much yet because if okay so with plasma cash right a version of plasma cash you would be able to scale massively like insanely huge numbers of transactions per second and that i think is incredibly useful and i mean like thousands of transactions but per it's second. only simple transactions
2: um, it's it's token transfers. yes it's
0: just token transfers but the thing is that just token transfers is already super useful in my opinion. Probably
1: ninety percent of like the transactions on Ethereum today are just token transfers. Are simple
0: token transfers. Yeah. So I think if you get a really good implementation of plasma cash out, that could uh, if and you convince enough users to kind of start transacting on it. Your transaction fees would be tiny. Your throughput would be insane. Your security guarantees would be pretty solid. I, I mean, I will put a Carl stamp of approval that
2: you will be famous. Some, something I've talked about the, uh, on this podcast before is that a lot of, like, I, I don't actually know the percentage anymore, but a lot of the transactions um, on mainnet is between uh, mining pools, paying out um, the shares... Because like each mining pool has thousands of users, and at some point, they pay. Usually, the payout is point one ETH. So whenever someone reaches point 0.1 ETH, they send a transfer. So, like at one point, it was half blocks are filled with mining pools paying out the, their shares. Wow. Um, and another huge part of it is um, between exchanges. So bots trading uh, is is a thing. So people just sending transactions between exchanges and also just people trading on exchanges in general. Um, So, I mean, if you can get mining pools and exchanges in on Plasma and get users to use that, I think you could remove the majority of traffic on Ethereum right now.
1: Totally. Uh, I think there are some caveats here, though. So I want to kind of go back to something Carl said, or at least I thought I heard him say, which is uh, that this is all going to be secure. Um, so it is worth noting that you are trusting like a central party here for availability. So if an exchange decides that the price is crashing right now and they want to be able to sell before you do, they can easily accomplish that. Um, you're also still trusting the exchange for order book integrity, uh, not to front run you, um, and all sorts of properties like this. So essentially any security property that relies on availability, uh, you don't get, you only get sort of this integrity. Um, And there might also be sort of other griefing attacks uh, related to, for example, the the denominations of plasma Cash, or like if you have decimals, like splitting into weird decimals and like combining and splitting UTXOs in weird ways. So I think it's like not an extremely well understood uh, sort of security model. So while it will give you scaling and it'll certainly be much better than uh, just using a centralized exchange like 99% of people do. Uh, there's still some care that users should take in terms of trusting their funds. Um, and especially if you generalize this to smart contracts, um, like Carl said, the dream here is to achieve massive throughput. Um, the problem with doing smart contracts is that if someone cheats you, the challenge to actually prove they've done this could potentially be pretty large. And if you are scaling to a massive throughput, I mean, this could even, like, overwhelm the main chain or, or uh, you know, be some kind of denial, broader denial of service vector.
0: The day after I released the Plasma Cash simple spec, Phil messaged me saying, I would totally wreck your system. I will grief the crap out of your token denominations. I, so this is why we have Phil in the Ethereum community. I'm, I'm just
1: mean, sorry.
0: <laughs> no, Phil is the best.
1: Um, yeah. I, I probably wouldn't actually grief it because it would cost me money and I don't care that much. But, you know, maybe I'll, I'll tell someone else how to do it.
0: <laughs> so good. Um, yeah, there's, I mean, they're they're definitely like... The security model, all of these things need to be very clearly specified. There's a bunch of edge cases that need to be, uh, like, worked out. Um, The whole concept of, okay, the plasma chain is, uh, plasma cache chain is safe, but it's not always going to be live. Like, even understanding what safety and liveness are, and, you know, that's kind of, like another thing um, and and maybe adding proof of stake so that you can actually have multiple operators that are submitting blocks, but then you... um like uh, the the proof of stake validators are are basically signing off on those blocks, so you can maybe have multiple exchanges using the same plasma chain that are you know don't have like in other words, no operator has first prior or first class uh, access, although even that gets tricky anyway the design space is
2: huge what what's the idea of who gets to be an operator
0: yeah i mean that's that's a, it's whole that's a whole design space in and of in and of itself right um you yeah. can I
1: mean, you can do a consensus protocol for yeah. operators, potentially. I mean, yeah. You, like Carl said, uh, you know, question mark, question mark, question mark. Your um,
0: sofa could be an operator.
1: Your, your sofa could actually be an operator. It wouldn't be a very available operator, um, <laughs> but you could
2: try. But yeah, um, if, if there was, like, if we're talking about this sort of low-level use case of pools and exchanges or something, if you ran a proof-of-authority network where every exchange and every mining pool participated, I'd, I'd trust that because they... They're kind of competitive with each other and sort of, sort of sure. not really. But so, I trusted enough that I'd do my exchange transactions
1: on that. So uh, I, I don't think this quite solves the problem of, like, for example, mining pool payouts. Because in general, what miners want to do is cash out as quickly as possible so they can pay their bills, which are all in USD. Um, And so you'd need some way to move your coins from the pool to the exchange, which at least in the versions of Plasma that I've seen so far has to all go through the main chain anyway. So I don't really think you're saving much on that use case. Um, It's also worth mentioning with all this that like as much as I complain about the security, it is strictly better than, you know, a centralized exchange right now, um, which is where most people trade um, and which you're essentially trusting for everything uh, fully. So at least this sort of raises the bar for an attack and like limits the scope of an attack a little bit. A lot. (laughs) We'll see. Um, So let me give my, like, two-minute rent spiel, which is uh, essentially that uh, it's pretty well known at this point in the research community that storage is one of the fundamental blockchain resources that are sort of being exchanged in this two-sided blockchain commodities market. Um, And currently, Ethereum and many other blockchain systems sort of charge you for storage up front uh, once, and then the entire node has to store your data forever. You just expect it to be available whenever you need it, and you don't have to worry about this problem. Um, so that's like a really nice mental model for users. Developers love this model, and it's caused blockchains to, to take off quite a bit in popularity. Um, unfortunately, there's some like, dirty little secrets here. Uh, one of them is that uh, full nodes are currently not incentivized. So you have these nodes that need to actually bear the cost of storing the data. Uh, data which is chosen for inclusion by a different set of parties, miners, who actually don't need to store the data. So they have no incentive to to make this expensive because they, they just simply don't care. Um, unless it gets so bad that the network doesn't work, uh, they don't care. They're looking to short-term sell and make some money. Um, another problem is sort of that right now this storage is really underpriced. So you can buy a full Ethereum block right now for under a dollar. Um, which in terms of storage is, is pretty, pretty low for storage that lasts forever. Um, another problem is that, that storage is sort of charged statically um, in terms of gas, which opens up arbitrage opportunities because of uh, this mechanism in Ethereum for incentivizing state clearing, which is to provide a refund when you delete storage. So you can use this at sort of a higher gas price than you originally allocated the storage at to uh, achieve refunds. And we've actually tokenized the scheme in something called Gas Token, so you can check that out at Mm -hmm. gastoken.io, part of the broader uh, Project Chicago initiative, which aims to study the uh, appropriate pricing and markets for these sort of crypto commodities, as we're calling them. Um, So the solution to this problem, and the only way to really accurately reflect the cost of storage and pricing, is to charge uh, per unit of time. And there have been a number of proposals. Um, I'm not going to enumerate them all because we don't have time. Um, but this is, a, this is a pretty controversial issue because uh, it breaks the mental model that, like I've said, most people like so much. And it also goes after this implicit subsidy on storage that has caused blockchains to take off uh, so fantastically. Um, and unfortunately, this is something that might actually, uh, the market might prefer uh, that you do this wrong and have a scheme that's not incentive compatible rather than having a scheme that is incentive compatible. Because a scheme that is incentive compatible is going to be more expensive for users today um, and so it's sort of going to cause more pain today. Uh, and it's not clear to me that the current cryptocurrency market actually values long-term incentive compatibility or long-term sustainability uh, over short-term, uh, short-term utility and, and price fluctuations. So it's a controversial loaded issue, but I think we're going to need to explore rent, and we're going to need to introduce rent on pretty much any blockchain that wants to sustain itself, uh, especially if it's offering state.
0: But how do we do it? moderately user-friendly like is there is there a way that you can see a developer you know paying rent and not having to stress about it so i think at the base layer you can
1: sort of give people a lot of flexibility you can allow people to design contracts that pay their own rent you can allow people to prepay rent for as long a period as they want Um, you can sort of have like rent control like schemes where people will sort of have a bound on how quickly their rent will rise and will therefore be able to predict how much they need to pay if they want a certain time to live for their contract. Um, you can even have community subsidies for contracts that are commons goods and that are used by a variety of contracts. Um, so there's like, at, like Plasma, there's like a very wide design space um, in rent.
2: So what, what's, what will happen when rent runs out?
1: Uh, when when rent runs out, so this is another open question. So essentially your storage has to be deleted because nodes can no longer bear the cost of storing this thing that you're not paying for. Um, the question then is, do you later allow someone to come in and resurrect that storage with a proof that it's existed in the past using the blockchain history? Or do you not allow this kind of resurrection? Um, or do you support both options in your system? Um, there are trade-offs for all of these. So, you know, for example, if you do allow resurrection and your protocol is... Even if it is a secure protocol with some probability of failure, in that probability you could potentially end up with someone like replacing the state of a contract with something old or something else, and that could be very catastrophic um,
2: so so I mean looking at just the the normal blockchain model, there's a block with a transaction that transactions includes everything that gets stored and ever has been stored. You would have to split that up somehow so that you're committing in your transaction, maybe a hash of what you're trying to store, and then your, your actual storage is somewhere else. Because otherwise, like, how do you delete something from the so chain? So that's
1: the stateless client model. Um, that's sort of different and orthogonal to RENT. Um, you, the way you delete something from a chain is that all the full nodes just delete it from their database. Like, we all agree on when RENT runs out, and we just delete it.
2: But then um, how do you like recompute the hashes all the way? Like, How do you validate the chain after something has been modified in, in the history. Well, yeah, I can
1: delete stuff in, in state today. Like, I can have a smart contract where I store data and then I delete it later. And, like, as long as everyone agrees on what I delete and modifies their state appropriately, there's no problem
2: there.
0: Yeah, it's all deterministic.
2: Yeah. Yeah, I mean, you can d- delete it from your state database, but you can't delete it from the the. No, no, no. So if the consensus protocol bodies.
1: agrees that everyone deletes it from their state database, then we
2: all delete it. And but, but it's still in the block body.
1: Yeah, yeah. So there's two things here. There's state and history. They're sort of separate. Um, We're talking about state right now. Uh, So in the Ethereum model, at least, full nodes don't necessarily need to store history. Uh, Incentivizing history storage is a separate question. There's uh, an open question of whether that's even valuable. Like, if you have state, do you even really need history for anything other than, like, archaeological and archival purposes that maybe someone like archive.org or a researcher like me would have it for? Um, so what we're talking about is only like the current state. In Bitcoin, you can think of this as the UTXO set. Um, so essentially having like UTXOs that expire would be the Bitcoin analog.
2: But then then you're still, you're, you are still bearing some cost by having it in the block body forever. I mean, uh, only that, if
1: you're th- storing history. So today in, in Ethereum, almost all full nodes do not store history. Yeah. So they, they would not be bearing the cost.
0: And just to give a little bit of um, perspective, the current state of Ethereum, at least so I've heard a few days ago or something, um, is like three gigabytes yeah, or around something? Three gigabytes. Ar- around yep. three gigabytes. But then if you were to store the full history, then it's around like 60 gigabytes? Is that More. Like-
1: it's like almost 200 now. Okay, 200 yeah. gigabytes. Uh-huh. So
0: history is huge. The state is relatively small. Yeah, in in, history, in, history at least in an
1: archival node includes like the full state at every block. Yeah,
2: I mean so yes. that's very an archival expensive. node is is massive right now. That's like seven hundred gigs or something. Well, uh, it depends on your client. I think
1: we're running one and it's like two hundred. Uh, if you run CPP Ethereum very unoptimized, then yeah, it's like seven hundred or something like that. Um, yeah,
2: I, I mean you, I, I could I could if pull you're it you're up and tell you run Parity and and uh, basically run it in the pruned mode, uh, which keeps the full chain, including bodies, and the latest states. Uh, then you're at about 50 gigs or something right now. Yeah. And uh, the um, archive mode parity is something like 600 to 700. Phil yeah. thinks it's 200.
1: No, I, th- I think it's 200, yeah. I mean, I can, I can look it up, but <laughs> it's kind of uh, orthogonal. Yeah. Um, so, so, right, so, yeah, this is purely a state issue that we're talking about, and state and history affect very different parts of the system, like... Uh, your average Ethereum node booting up and doing a fast sync is going to be drastically affected by the size of state and less affected by the size of history. Um, so history is an interesting question too, but I just don't think it's as urgent at, on the roadmap. And I think maybe the solutions we come up with for state will suggest directions to investigate for history as well.
0: Are there ways to get the like rent model very wrong? Is there are there, like, are there, like, gotchas or scary things when, when coming up with a,
1: like... Oh, yeah. I mean, there are always going to be security risks. Um, there are a lot of different rent proposals. One of them, uh, for example, is that each storage location uh, has to be essentially owned by a user who's responsible for paying for it. So if you think of an ERC-20 contract, you have mm-hmm. your tokens and you, I have mine. I have to pay rent on my tokens and you have to pay rent on yours um so if there's some state that let's say we both care about and somehow it expires because we're not paying attention that could be a security risk Mm. you could have like partial degradations in some schemes uh of course there's also all sorts of ux issues if people mess up uh how much they're paying and then they expect to have data availability and they don't so that's like a very bad ux for users um to speak to to sort of the earlier discussion we were having about like what this looks like for a user Probably eventually, uh, once rent is really active, there will be several layers of indirection between even developers and like the base rent layer, where the default mode will be sort of to have this slider where you choose how long you want your state to live for and, and pay appropriately. Um, even in this model, it's possible you can have permanent state, you just have to pay maybe a lot more for it, um, in, su- in some variants of this model at least. So all of these are sort of open questions and, and pretty serious trade-offs. Um,
2: I mean, I don't think developers necessarily have a problem with paying. I mean, you all like if you write a web app and deploy it to Roku, you you expect to pay ten bucks a month or whatever. Exactly. It is. Yeah, and like
1: you can preset the slider to three years and pay your like fifty dollars or whatever um and then if in two years people still care about the contract they'll get a notification that the rent is about to expire and they can top it off you can top it off Uh, you can come up with like a scheme where your DAO pays for its own rent. like there's all sorts of uh, all sorts of possibilities here
2: i think uh, the main problem is in the difference between uh, users and creators of an app so a creator of an app might say okay i'm gonna pay monthly for this because i don't know if this is going to make me money or not i want to experiment with this thing and Put it out there, and um, users come into it expecting that it'll exist. And right, because we've established this precedent that everything will exist forever, it's it breaks that expectation that you're going in saying like, "I'm gonna try out this app and and kind of expect that it'll always be there." Sure, but th- that expectation doesn't hold in in the rest of the world. Like if you use a web app, use Facebook, you may expect that Facebook will exist forever, but it it won't.
1: Yeah, and I think that expectation is completely unsustainable, so it has to somehow be broken at some point. Um and in terms of what you were talking about with the user experience, so I don't think as a developer you'd want to pay for only one month for a few reasons. Probably it's not going to be very expensive to have one month uh, of storage in this model. Um right now whatever you're paying for permanent storage, right, like it's it's way too low, but there's no reason to expect that like one month will be some crazy price. Um, also, you you do want your app to have adoption. So if you come to users and you say, "Here's my app," it's going to be like you it, like they go in in their UI and and it shows like TTL one month. They might be wary of using this application. So yeah. you sort of have to make the choice of like, what are my users comfortable with?
2: What am I comfortable yeah. with? So I agree. I think that's a great point. Is that you you can actually have like a TTL. You can say that this sh- it this will is guaranteed to exist for like two years. Yeah. Exactly. Unfortunately, the remaining 10 minutes of this conversation were uh, lost due to uh, SD card failure, but hopefully we can get Phil Dion back on an episode in the future to talk more about storage rent, what it would entail, what some models to make this work could look like, and uh, potentially maybe even dig deeper into the discussion on what a good UX for this would be. Thanks for listening!